Welcome to the I Am Persuaded podcast with Travis Shelton. Our desire is to provide weekly encouragement and biblical truths so that you too can be persuaded that he is able. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Now let's hear what Pastor Travis has to say. Welcome back to the I Am Persuaded podcast. I thank you so much for tuning in and I apologize for not posting one on the scheduled week over Thanksgiving, but I just took the week off uh, from posting that week and so we're back this week. But I truly hope these spiritual gifts episodes have been a blessing to you and an encouragement. And I hope they've more equipped you to understand what you're supposed to do inside of your relationship with Jesus. And so it's clear in scripture. We all have a part to play. We all have a role to do. And Christ has equipped us to accomplish the task that he's given us. And so this is the last episode in the spiritual gift series. It's around an hour and I hope it'll be a blessing. And so kind of like last episode, we're just going characteristic by characteristic and the misuses of the rest of the seven spiritual gifts. And so here it is and I hope you enjoy it. All right, Romans chapter 12 in your Bibles. We'll recap really quickly. We don't have time to go back over all that we went over last week, but I wanted to say if you missed a week or missed two weeks, I will give you all of my notes that my email is on the back of the paper. I can email you all of my notes and they're just basically, especially last week and this week, just word for word, what I'm going to tell to you, it's on, these, it's on this page of notes. And then secondly, I've recorded every week for my podcast and so I'm going to post that probably in a couple of months. And so if you missed anything, you want to go back and re-listen to it, it'll be up in just probably a month or two. I'm finishing something right now on eschatology, the end times. And uh, then once that's over, I'm going to post these probably just every Friday, one after another. And so you'll have access to it that way. If you miss something or want to go back and recap where you might say, I'm done with this guy. I don't want anything. I don't want to listen to him ever again. He's talked for an hour nonstop for four weeks. I'm sick of him. So if that's the case, don't tell me it'll hurt my feelings. I told you that last week. I get hurt by words, but thank it. All right. So it's on the podcast. If you want to listen to it, that's, that'll be great. Last week we began, we, we started this exhaustive list of seven of the main gifts going characteristic by characteristic, how you would act if you had this gift. And so the purpose of this class was never to tell you in your scenario, at your job, and your personal life, how you're to live out this gift. But rather the purpose of this class is number one, to show you who bestows the gifts. And what do we do once we get the gifts? It's to glorify Jesus and to work for the body of Christ. And so the purpose of the class was, as Brother Barbary said years ago, everyone has received a gift. Every believer has received at least one gift. So you better figure it out so that you can minister for Christ more effectively. And so that's been my prayer, is that through reading these characteristics, this is not my ideal way to teach. I told you that last week. But hopefully through you can hear these things and you can think, that sounds a lot like me. Or maybe it sounds a lot like your spouse. And maybe this is the way she is. Maybe, this is the, maybe that's the way he does those certain things. And so hopefully it can help us understand our gift and how we can better use it in our specific environment. And so I hope it's been a blessing the past three weeks. And I'm looking forward to closing tonight. I'm going to try to just go quick through these last four so we get it all out. I would rather finish early and get it all done than not finish and, and not get it all done. So I'd rather just get all the material out there and I can email it to you and it will be on the podcast if you want to go back. So last week we started this exhaustive list and each gift has about 20 characteristics. And then it has about five misuses of how the devil can come in. He can take your personality, he can take the gift, and he can use it uh, for the bad in this world. And so we looked at that. So we looked, number one, last week at the discerner. We looked at the teacher, and we looked at the server. And so that's as far as we got last week. And we also 
coming up to that, we looked at four of the signs and wonders gifts. How these four gifts, you might have gotten them on your test, but I believe through my study of Scripture, they are not in usage today based on Scripture given in 1 Corinthians 13 that says they will pass away. And I believe they were already passing away as Paul was writing those words. And so now we pick up tonight with the exhorter. So there on your sheet, we pick up with the exhorter. And again, you do not have to try to write down everything I'm going to say. It's a mouthful. So I'm the one speaking it, I know. So there's probably no way you're going to get down everything that I say. And so that's okay. That's why if you want the notes, I'll email them to you. You can read them probably better that way without you having to just write as fast as you can. All right, so the exhorter. Romans chapter 12, verse 8, it says this. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. So here it is, the, the gift of exhortation. This is encouragement. And so the teacher, we talked about last week, aims for the head. The teacher comes with knowledge. The exhorter is going to aim for your heart. It is not so much about the content that the exhorter is con concerned with, but they want to impart uh, the content that they have, how it can be effective in your life to make change with the encouragement that they have to give. The encourager, all of his or her effort is geared towards edifying and encouraging the body of Jesus. And so that's the encourager in one sentence. Their gift is geared toward edifying and encouraging other people inside of the body of Christ. All right, so here we go, 1 through 20, the characteristics of the encourager or the exhorter. Number one, they love to encourage others to live victoriously. The encourager loves to encourage others to live victoriously. The exhorter wants everyone to have a full and a meaningful life. They want to help those around them inside of the body of Christ live up to their full potential that Christ has called them to. Now, I feel like I have part, probably not my main gift, but my passion for teenagers. Man, I desire every week to see them grow up and be all that they can be for Christ. I don't like seeing Christians bound up in bondage. I want them to live in the freedom that Christ has called them to live. So number one, loves to encourage others to live the victorious Christian life. you ever talked to an encourager, that's what they're after. They want you to live a victorious Christian life. Number two, wants a visible response when teaching or speaking. Wants a visible response when teaching or speaking. So this is if the exhorter or the encourager is using, has also the teaching gift and they teach in front of people. They want a visible response. Interaction with the hearers is, in, is essential for the exhorter. He needs to know that he is communicating and the people are understanding what he's saying. I can attest to this. If I'm preaching to a group of teenagers, I preached at Faith Christian all week, and I'll stop with the stories because we got to go. But I preached at Faith Christian all week. And on Monday, it was 8.15 on a Monday morning. And you know how teenagers are at, and how I am at 8.15 on a Monday morning. I looked up to the right, and there is a senior with his head up against a wall, possibly snoring. He was out. And so that's like me. I'm like, man, I'm doing an awful job. They're not listening to me, but then it got better. The Lord really blessed that week. But they want a visible response when teaching or speaking. Number three, they prefer to apply truth rather than research it. And so whereas the teacher, we said they're in the books, they are diving into truth, they're wanting to find the nuggets of Scripture and be able to share them, the exhorter prefers to apply truth rather than research it. So their, their idea is, why reinvent the wheel? Why re-research something that's already been researched? I can take someone else's information and I can give it to the person to help them. Because they're not aiming for head knowledge, they're aiming for how can I take this information and how can I communicate it to the person that's in need to give them a heart change. All right, number four, prefer systems of information that have practical application. They're how-to people. They also like to read books, kind of like the teacher, that focus on the practical application of Christian living. They prefer sermons that reveal how to apply Christian principles in an everyday life rather than just hearing doctrine. They want to know, how do I apply this to my life? Number five, loves to prescribe steps of actions to have action to personal growth. So loves to prescribe steps of action to aid or help 
personal growth. If you've ever talked to an encourager, this is them. All right, I hear your problem. Well, here's how you're going to get out of it. I hear your problem. Here's step one. You're going to pray. Here's step two. You're going to read scripture. They're always encouraging, but they're giving you steps how to get out of the situation that you are in. So they love to prescribe steps of action to aid your personal growth. Number six, they focus on working with people. You'll see a lot of times exhorters, encouragers, they're working with kids, they're working with people, they're speaking at the same time. They love to be around people and they love to be working with people because they know a lot of needs arise when they're with people. And so that when they're with people, they can examine and understand the need in that person's life. And here they can come with truth. Here they can come with content and say, this is how I can encourage you. So the encourager likes to work with people. Number seven, encourages others to develop in their personal ministries. And so exhorters want everyone to develop full and fruitful ministries. Their philosophy is don't sit around on your hands, get up and get involved. So they want to see you growing when you come to the encourager for counsel even. They want to see you growing in your personal relationship with the Lord, and they want to see your ministry fruitful for the cause of Christ. Number eight, finds truth and experience and then validates it with Scripture. So life is full of lessons and insights to the encourager. So everything they go through, they're going to turn that around into a life lesson. The parent is an encourager. Well, back in my day, this happened to me, and this is a life lesson for you. Well, it's, it's tough at school right now. So you can go take that as a life lesson and give them truth. Truth that, and then you validate it with scripture. Exhorters discover truth by finding out, experimenting that something works. And so they are experimenters. They love to try things. And if it works, then they're sharing it with those that are around them. Number nine, they love to do personal counseling. And so they are some of the most beneficial counselors. Some of the exhorters, encouragers, they are some of the most beneficial counselors. If you find a counselor that lacks encouraging, encouragement and they lack compassion, that's not going to be a great counseling experience. And so the encourager, when you go to them for counsel, they are there to help you and they're aiming for your heart and they want to help you get out of the situation, but also they want to give you steps to do so. And they're encouraging you every single step of the way. Number 10, they will also discontinue personal counseling if no effort or change is seen. And so like I said earlier, the encourager, they like to see change. They like to see fruit. They like a response to what they're saying. And so if the encourage, so if you're an encourager and you're pouring into someone, but day after day, you see no fruit, you see no change, you see no uh, transformation. It's going to get disheartening to you as, a, as an encourager because you're going to be like, what I'm saying, what I'm aiming for, I'm seeing no evidence that it's working in their life. And so this could be a misuse of them as well, but it's under the characteristics, but they will discontinue personal counseling if no effort is, is made in their life. Number 11, they're are oftentimes fluent in communication. Exhorters are the mouth of the body. I showed you that graphic last week. They're the mouth of the body with the greatest facility in speech of any of the gifts. They want to verbally express encouragement to others. And so while not every exhorter or encourager will be speaking, a lot of them love to use their words to encourage the body of Christ. So they'll say things that uplift you. They'll say things that benefit you. They'll say things constantly, small little jabs and sentences that are there to help uplift the people they're working with. Number 12, they view trials as opportunities to, pr to produce personal growth. Uh, exhorters unquestionably love the verse Romans 8.28. For we know all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And so they believe that verse and they put that verse into practice to the people that they talk to. When they have someone come to them with a need, hey, Romans 8, 28, it's going to work together for the good. Do you love God? You're called according to his purpose. So we know based on scripture that what you're living through, it's going to work out for the good because God has said it will work out for the good. They cling to Romans 8, 28. Exhorters or encouragers see opportunities, not obstacles, challenges, not 
not trials, possibilities, not problems. And so they're always looking, no matter what the situation is, it could be the worst thing in the world to you, and here comes the encourager, and they can see light in it, because they can say, hey, Romans 8, 28, it's going to work together for the good, God's called you according to his purpose, so we can believe scripture, and it will aid in your personal growth. Number 13, accepts people as they are without judging them. Accepts people as they are without judging them. While discerners see people as either in the will of God or out of the will of God, remember I said last week for the first one, discerners, they see things as black and white. They see things as right and wrong. They see if you're in the will of God or if you're out of the will of God. The encourager, they look at things a little bit differently. The exhorters are just the opposite. They don't see extremes at all. They're living vastly in a gray area. So nothing's black, nothing's white, everything's kind of in the middle ground. We can help you out of this. I can encourage you here. And so the encourager lives a lot of time in the gray area, not like the discerner. So when a discerner and an encourager get together, man, they're probably going to be button heads because they're both opinionated as the day is long. And so this believes black and white, encourager living in the gray area most of the time with a lot of things. Number 14, is greatly loved because of his or her positive attitude. You'll find that in ministry and in everyday situations of life, the encourager is the one that people are drawn to. They love the personality. They love the attitude. They love the way the person acts. They love everything about the person because they know when I go talk to that person, he's going to give me encouragement. And so they, love, they are the people that everybody likes. Everybody wants to be around. The exhorter draws people to him or her just by being optimistic and positive, very popular among the people he or she ministers to. So you know what it's like going to the encourager. Oh, man, it's going to be okay. It's going to be great. God's got this. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good. And maybe you're thinking, what do you mean all things are going to work together for the good? I just got the worst news in my life. And here this person is still bubbly and fantastic and loving life and loving the Lord because they're an encourager and they're the people we want to be around a lot of the times. So number 15, prefers to witness with life experiences rather than verbal witnessing. Now, they're fluent in communication, but the encourager's uh, main way of witnessing and evangelizing is through life experience. Remember I said the other week, uh, you're either portraying Christ or you're proclaiming Christ. The exhorter does both. They're going to verbally witness, but they're also through their everyday life, the way they counsel with you, the way they talk with you. They're going to portray Christ very effectively in their day-to-day -day life because they are close in their relationship with the Lord and in Scripture. Number 16, makes decisions easily. Man, some of you are probably thinking, I wish I had that. We, me and my wife in the car, where do you want to go to eat? No, I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Me and Christiana probably aren't encouragers because we both can't make a decision. And so number 16, they make a decision easily. Decision making comes naturally and easily to most encouragers. They make their decisions based on what they know at that time. That's the gray area they're living in. Okay, I don't know the black. I don't know the white. I know what it is right now. Here's my answer. And so they make a decision very easily. Number 17, always completes what is started. Similar to the serving gift, the exhorter does not like unfinished work or uncompleted projects. Exhorters only need one bookmark. They never read more than one book at a time. So they always finished what started. They would not like to go and add, start another project until this one is completed. They always start what they finish. Number 18, wants to clear up problems with others quickly. The encourager likes to fix problems very quickly. Exhorters do not like strained relationships. They do not like confrontation. They do not like a relationship that's strained and have tension in it. If necessary, they will even take the blame in order to build the bridge to right the friendship. So even if they know the other person's wrong, just to fix the, the issue, the exhorter at times will take, I'm, I'm, I'm at fault. I'm the one that's wrong, just to rebuild the friendship. Number 19 and the last one, expects a lot of self 
and others. They expect a lot from themselves. They encourage because they're constantly pouring into people. The exhorters believe God wants us to venture out into the unknown and do things uh, that we didn't like to do before. So the exhorters, they expect a lot of themselves and they expect a lot from the people they're counseling. All right, really quickly, the problems and the misuses with the exhorter. So we've covered the characteristics. Now here's how Satan can come in or how you not living in the will of God can take the gift that's been bestowed to you by the Spirit and use them for not so great uh, in your life. Number one, tends to interrupt others in eagerness to give opinions or advice. You know the person. You're talking to them, they give you a lot of encouragement, but while you're saying something, hey, 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 hey. They're ready to interject their opinion. They're ready to interject their thoughts. They're ready to interject what they think. And so they tend to interrupt others in eagerness to give their opinion or their encouragement. Exhorters have much to say. Exhorters, their tendency to interrupt can be a source of frustration for others. And so some people who are not the encourager, some person who is not the compassionate one, they want to just talk and it's their time to talk. But here comes the encourager. Hey, Let me interject. And so sometimes that can frustrate others. Number two, we'll use scripture out of context in order to make a point. And so I said at the teacher, that's one of my biggest pet peeves when someone uses scripture outside of context. And I have not found this one to be very true. But what they can do is they'll try to apply a verse that doesn't mean what it says into someone's situation all to aid them and give them encouragement. Even if it means I'm going to pluck the verse out of context just a little bit. In the exhorter's mind, they're just verifying scripture is secondary. They just want to help the person that's in need. And I can completely understand that, but we have to be true to context of Scripture. Number three, maybe cut and dry in prescribing steps of actions. So they might be cut and dry in prescribing steps of action because those with motivational gift of, the, of encouraging are so good at giving advice, they can easily fall into the trap of giving the pat on the back answers. And so it's very important for the encourager to understand if that's the tendency, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to give us guidance and counsel in every situation and every person we're going to be speaking to. So if we're going to give someone counsel, we need to be very clear, clear and careful that we're not just giving them the, hey, God's got this. Hey, God will take care of it. And he will, and that is very good advice, but sometimes they're looking for deep scriptural answers, and we need to discern and pray as encouragers, what can I say to help this person through scripture and understand how I can help this person out of that situation? Otherwise, the exhorter can develop a cocky, I know what to do in every situation mentality. So you've probably been around that person. Man, I've got the encouragement. I've got the answer to every life's problem. So I want you to come to me. I'll give you the answer. And so that person can develop the cocky attitude of I know every answer to every one of life's situation. Number four, they're outspokenly opinionated. And we kind of talked about this one with another gift. Outspokenly opinionated. The exhorter is always glad to tell you what he thinks. Whether you agree with him or not, exhorters rather enjoy telling others what to do. A good rule is for the exhorter, don't answer questions that I haven't been asked. And don't give advice that hasn't been asked for. So that kind of goes back to the first point. They're ready to interject, ready to interrupt in anybody's conversation. So a good rule of thumb for the exhorter is don't answer questions that haven't been asked to me and don't give advice that hasn't been asked for. Perhaps the most effective prayer for the overly talkative exhorter would be, Lord, put a guard on my mouth and give me counsel for what to say to this person. Number five and lastly, can become overly self-confident. So the exhorter can become overly self-confident. In today's world, self-confidence is, sought after, is a sought-after quality. Like the foolish man who built his home upon the sand, it makes a bad foundation. And so our basic confidence as any, any one of these gifts, our basic confidence is never in self. Our confidence is in Jesus and the spirit that lives on the inside of us and the authority that we have in Scripture. So that goes for every single gift. We need to learn to rely not on what we know and what we can do. We need to learn to rely on what God has given us and how God would have us to minister in that area. All right, so that's the exhorter. 
When you take a breath, your pen might hurt, your arm might hurt, you can rest your hand a little bit. That's the exhorter. Let's look now at the giver. Look at verse 8 again of Romans chapter 12. Just going where we see these in Scripture. So he says, Or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. And so, of all of the seven of the main motivational gifts that we find in Scripture, the giver is the one that we hear about the least. And simply that's because the command given in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 3, don't let your left hand know what your right hand giveth. And so that's a command in Scripture. We're not to be boastful about what we give. And so a lot of times if you possess the gift of giving, a lot of people around you won't know it. And so there's a lot of good that comes with this gift. The best gift cannot be bought or sold. It is the giving, uh, it's giving part of oneself. And so that's the mindset of the giver. The best gift is giving of oneself and giving to others that are around me. All right, so the characteristics of the giver, we'll go through these one by one. Number one, gives freely of money, possessions, time, energy, and love. Gives freely of money, possessions, time, energy, and love. So notice that givers give far more than just money. So if you're scored on the give, if you scored very high on giving on the spiritual gifts test, it doesn't mean you're going to give all of your paycheck. You're giving more than just money each time. You're giving freely of your resources, of your money, but you are giving of your possessions, your time, your energy, and your love. In the more mature stages of a giver's life, they give with absolutely no strings attached. Nothing behind this. I'm just giving because it's what God has called me to do. They simply become channels for the Lord to use for the distribution of his resources that they've given him. So the giver very well understands. What's been given to me, it's a gift from God. Any good thing that I have, it's from above. It's nothing I have done. Everything that I possess, it's of the Lord. And so here I am going to give what God's given me to those around me. So they give freely of money, possessions, time, energy, and love. Number two, loves to give without others knowing about it. That goes back to Matthew chapter 6. They love to give without others knowing about it. And so I've had people give me stuff before in this church, and they'll come and don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. I don't want anybody to know that I'm blessing you in this aspect, in this area. And so givers do not like others knowing about what they give. Jesus had a lot to say, Jesus did, about broadcasting our good deeds. Something we don't do. We're not doing what we do for man's applause, any of the seven gifts. We're not doing what we do to get a pat on the back by man. We're doing what we do to serve Jesus and serve the body of Christ where he's called us to right here. Givers do not want to receive credit. Often they will go to, do a, to, to go to great lengths to assure that others do not find that about the gift that they've given to someone. Number three, wants to feel part of the ministries to which he contributes. Wants to feel a part of the ministries to which he contributes. So givers give to ministries that they believe in. So you'll find believers, they'll get giving a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of resources, a lot of love to things that they fully believe in. Because they, at the end of the day, the giver wants to see the main mission of Christ accomplished here on earth and what they're giving to. Therefore, they not only give financially, but they get involved in other ways in the church and in the body of Christ uh, with their time and with their energy. So the giver wants to believe in what they're giving to. They want to see fruit. They want to see what's happening. And they want to give to something that they can buy into. Number three. Wants to fill a part of the ministries. Oh, I just read that one. Number four, intercedes for the needs and the salvation of souls. Intercedes for the needs and the salvation of souls. Givers often keep a list of people that they're praying about and they know needs to receive salvation. They will intercede faithfully until with joy they can check that name off of a list. And so givers, they're more than just financial givers. They are giving in their prayer life. They're praying for people in the church. They're praying for people that they know at work that need to know Jesus. And a lot of times they're organized. They're keeping a list. This person needs Jesus, and I can't wait to see them come to know Christ as Savior. Above all, 
The giver wants to see God's kingdom and God's will brought out in everybody's life. They want to see God's will played out right here. If you're a giver in Beulah Baptist Church, your main goal probably is I want to see God do great things in this church through the lives of his people. Number five, feels happy when his gift is an answer to specific prayer. Feels happy when his gift is an answer to specific prayer. Since givers know the highest, since, since givers know that the highest and best use of their gift is when they're being led to give by the Holy Spirit, they are especially thrilled when someone says, "How do you know I need this?" Some of you that are givers, you've probably had this happen in your life. You give to someone, and man, tears well up in the receiver's eyes, and they say, "How did you know I needed this right now?" Could be someone that needs groceries. Could be someone that needs financial help. Could be someone that needs just encouragement, time, energy spent toward them. But the greatest feeling to the giver is when someone wells up and says, man, how'd you know I need this? Because the giver is in tune with the spirit, praying and discerning, asking God to help them see a need so that they can give to that need right then and right there. Number six, wants their gift to be quality or craftsmanship. The giver wants their gift to be quality or craftsmanship. When the givers give, they want to give the best. They're not interested in giving half. They're not interested in giving part. They want to give the best that God has blessed them with to the person that stands in need. And so they want their gifts to be of highest quality that they can afford. They're always blessing, always giving, and they want what they give to be of great quality and craftsmanship. Number seven, gives only by the leading of the Holy Spirit. A mature giver will give only by the leading of the Holy Spirit. So you cannot talk a mature believer into giving into something they don't believe in. The mature believer is praying and asking God, how do you want me to give of myself, my time, my resources, and my money? And they will not give in to anything that they do not believe and buy into. They, they only give as the Holy Spirit directs. But if the Holy Spirit directs to give a large sum or to give a lot of time, they're more than willing because that's who they are at the core. They want to see God's kingdom advance. Number eight, gives to support and bless others or to advance a ministry. When givers select a ministry to advance with financial support, they check they check it out thoroughly. So when they buy into an evangelist that's coming and asking for support, they'll study him, they'll watch him, they'll pray about it, and they will not give unless, number one, the Holy Spirit's told them to, but number two, they can see that ministry producing great things for the glory and seeing salvations, uh, people come to Christ in salvation. So they will give, leading of the Holy Spirit, but give into things that they can buy into to advance a ministry where they're giving to. Number nine, views hospitality as an opportunity to give. So like the server, the giver loves to practice hospitality. The givers see it as an opportunity to give. So they're very hospitable people. They love people. They'll be around people and love serving people right where they are. Number 10, handles finances with wisdom and frugality. Handles finances very wise. They're very frugal with what they have. They keep the budget. They keep the budget to a T and they're strict to the budget because they know how to handle their money. So givers are good at handling money. They do not want to waste money. They would rather be giving their money to something that's going to advance the kingdom and advance souls to be saved rather than just giving to frivolous stuff. They want to see their money going to something that's going to matter in the long run. And so they're very good with their finances. Number 11, quickly volunteers to help where a need is seen. The giver comes alongside the server to help, one, uh, to help once someone else has identified the need. So the giver might not be the one that identifies the need in the beginning, but the giver, once the need has been seen, 
They are willing to come in at all means necessary to help give to the cause that's in front of them. So whereas the encourager might see the need up front and encourage, the giver might, have, might need help seeing the need. But once the need is seen, they're very quick to give, very quick to help out in that situation. Number 12, has a strong belief in tithing and giving in addition to tithing. And so the person with the motivational gift of giving would never think twice about holding part of their tithes. They said, God's called me to give 10%. I'm going to give 10% and some. So the giver is always faithful to give to God's house, to God's people, and to give to the body of Christ so that souls can be saved. And they would never think twice, should I give all of this? They always give their tithes to the church. Number 13, focuses on sharing the gospel. Givers are naturally evangelistic. Givers want to see souls saved. And so when they're giving of their time, of their resources, of their possessions, of their money, they want to give towards a mission that they can see is producing fruit and seeing souls saved so that the gospel is advanced. So they are very evangelistic at heart. They want to see evangelized. They want to see souls saved. And they're very focused on sharing the gospel with those around them and in the ministries that they give to. Number 15, believes God is the source of his supply. I already said this, but everything to the giver belongs to God. So the giver understands if I have received something, it's nothing that I have done. It's something that God has blessed me with and God has given me this. The Christian's job to them is simply to distribute money and resources wherever he directs. And so the giver understands everything I have, it's of God. And so if he directs me to give it, it wasn't mine anyways. And so this is one of their mindsets. If the supply runs out, it's God's anyways. He will resupply where the need is. And so the giver believes completely in total reliance on the Holy Spirit and God to direct them. They believe everything I have is God, so why can't I give it? If God's calling me to give it, he gave it to me so I can give it to them. They have every confidence that if they are being obedient to God's direction in their life, he will indeed take care of all of their needs. They don't have to worry about where's the meal going to come from. If God wants me to give, he's going to bless me as I give to them. Number 16 is very hardworking with a tendency towards success. You know these type of people. Everything they start, everything they begin, it seems like it turns to gold. Man, that person's just got an act for doing great things and starting businesses. And they're very successful at what they do. And I believe in the book that I read about this, they say that God prospers the giver so that they can have more resources to give out. And so you'll see that the giver, they have a great tendency towards success in their life, but that's just simply God putting his hand of blessing on that person because the church needs givers. The church needs people that are going to give of their resources, that's going to give of their time, energy, and money. Number 17, has natural and effective business ability. Has a natural and effective business ability. Givers are good at making money so that they can give what they have. Givers, you can see this in a young age of a child, they learn to save their money very early on and understand the value of money so that they can not just buy whatever they want, but they understand, hey, I can take this and I can do something good with what I have. You can see that in kids today and teenagers today. They learn to save their money and be frugal with their money at an early age. Number 18, likes to get the best value for the money spent. Givers don't like to waste money. When they give, they give the best. They shop for bargains and they shop for sales. You know the person, not buying it if it's full price. I know somebody in here is like that, not buying it if it's full price. I'm going to wait till I find a deal on that, and I'm going to buy it when there's a deal because they like to save that money. They shop for bargains and they shop for sales. Number 19 is definitely not gullible. They are not gullible. They are not easily fooled. So when they have something presented to them, they want to research it before they give their money. They want to understand, is this something that I should buy? And I'm not gullible. You're not going to steal money from me. You're not going to pull something over on me. They're not gullible. They're not easily fooled. Number 20 and lastly, 
possesses both natural and God-given wisdom. They possess both natural and God-given wisdom. Givers are fair and objective. Look at King Solomon, a biblical giver, prayed for wisdom, and he received much. All right, there's the 20 characteristics. Here comes the misuses of the giver. Number one, may try to control how contributions are used. May try to control how contributions are used. Now, where we said earlier, the mature giver has come through a stage in their life through the Holy Spirit leading where they give with no strings attached. But sometimes the giver, while they give very generously, they can also give with strings attached. And so, for example, they give to the building fund of the church, but hey, if I'm going to give that money, I want to pick the color of the carpet. If I'm going to give that money, I get to pick the pews. And so they're very generous, but they give with strings attached to what they're going to give. Number two, tends to pressure others into give. Not everybody has the gift of giving. Now, while I said two weeks ago, there are times when we're all called to give. There are times when we're all called to a lot of these gifts. The giver goes above and beyond what they give and what they do, and they'll try to pressure others into give. They fail to understand that while others do not give as much as they do, they think that they're not doing as much. So intentionally or unintentionally, they can be a source of pressures to other to give of what they have. Number three, they may upset family and friends with unpredictable patterns of giving. So I can hear some wives and husbands. Oh, that's you. May upset family and friends with unpredictable patterns of giving. Since givers are so very generous, they fail to talk over a big financial decision with the spouse, resulting in tension between the two. And so I've had conversations with givers before sitting around a dinner table, and they say, yeah, we'll give the money to it. We'll help support the cause. Husband, what? No, we won't. We haven't talked about this. And so sometimes the givers can be so eager to give that they forget to talk it over with people around them. Number four, tends to spoil their own children and others. Because they like to give so much, they'll give to whoever's around whenever a need comes up. And so their parents like these kind of, teens like these kind of parents. They get spoiled by material objects because they have a tendency to just give to whoever's around them. And they might end up spoiling sons, daughters, nieces, nephews, whoever's around them. Number five and last one, may use financial giving as a way to get out of other responsibilities. May use financial giving to get out of the way of other responsibilities, especially around the church. Sometimes the giver has the mindset that if they provide the money, they've done their part, they never need to come, they never need to come to a work day, and they never need to serve and put their hands into action because they think, if I've given the money, I've done my part. All right, so that is the giver. So if you want the notes for the exhorter or the giver, I can give you those specifically and email them to you if you just email me. All right, the administrator. The administrator. Look at verse number 8 again. So we ended with, He that giveth, let him do with simplicity. Look on in the verse. He that ruleth, with diligence. And so here is the administrator, the ruler, the one that's the boss, the CEO, the administrator. This is a gift that's given of the Spirit. And so the administrator is a born and natural leader. Other titles for this gift would include facilitator, organizer, ruler, leader, superintendent, boss, things like that, the administrator. So the characteristics of the administrator, number one, is highly motivated to organize that for which he's responsible. So if he's given an area to oversee, he's highly motivated to organize that for which he's responsible. Administrators love a challenge. Or we said last week, one of the gifts, like the small things they can check off their list, administrators want the long, far out gift. They can see the end goal, but it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of energy. It's going to take a lot of my resources. I'm going to have to dig deep into what I'm going to do to see the end of this accomplished. So an organized leader is by a job requirement, a jack of all trades, but a master of none. So the administrator, they can do everything, but they're not the best at much. 
And so they have got a natural tendency to, if someone, something needs to be done, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be there to handle it. But someone else with that specific gift could probably do it better. He must have a wide range of interests and abilities, but those who carry out specific tasks will be more capable and specialized in that facility. So the administrator, they can do a lot, but a lot of times they'll delegate things to other people to see the job accomplished more effectively. Number two, expresses ideas and organization in ways that communicate clearly. So administrators are excellent communicators, much like the exhorter, but they like to use charts, diagrams, and graphs and outlines to see what they're doing, and they're always putting things together, always putting together a plan, always putting together a, putting together a vision to see the end goal accomplished, and they communicate that very clearly. Number three, prefer, this, this can be true and sometimes cannot, prefers to be under authority in order to have authority. And so some administrators, they like to just be the boss, like to give the orders. Some administrators, they like to be under some type of authority. So if a pastor has the gift of administration, he'll like a deacon board that can help direct and give him, okay, here's my bounds, here's what I have to deal with, and here's what I can do in the realm of my authority. And so administrators understand honor, respect, and authority structures. Administrators want to know how much authority they have and what authority they do not have, and they respect those limits very well. And so they sometimes like to be under authority in order to have much authority. Number four, will not take responsibility unless delegated by those that are over them. So, will not take responsibility unless delegated by those in authority. Because the administrator has keen respect for authority, the administrator will deliberately not assume responsibility. So they can see the need, but they will not go and take charge of that unless they are told, hey, this is, your, this is your sector, this is your circle, this is what you're to do. So there are a lot of administrators who are not utilizing their abilities because of this characteristic. They're not administrating in that area simply because they haven't been told to take charge over that area. So that could also be a misuse of the administrator. Number five, will assume responsibilities if no leadership exists. Now, if there is no authority over them telling them what to do, they will just pick up in leadership wherever they can see a, a need to pick up leadership. In situations where there is no existing authority uh, structure, it is the administrators who will most likely and naturally step in and take charge. We said last week, the server a lot of times does not like to lead, they like to follow. The administrator, they love to lead. And so if they see a situation where leading is needed, they will come in very quickly and take charge of that situation. You know the people at Tribulation Trail, everybody's just standing around, what do we do? Here comes the leader, here comes the administrator, all right, here's what we're gonna do, here's how it's gonna be accomplished. Number six, especially enjoys working on long-range goals and projects. Administrators are the ones who attend seminars, they like to see large goals put together, like to work on a team and see big things happen. They would rather not work on small, meaningless tasks, they wanna see the large goal accomplished in whatever it is they're working on. They wanna see their goal become a reality. Number seven, they are a visionary person with a wide perspective. And so pastors with this goal, they have a good job at casting vision for what, where they want their church to go. They're a visionary person, person with a wide perspective. A good leader or administrator is a person of vision and in upholding that vision for others to see he can inspire great accomplishment. Along with the vision comes a specific type of faith. Administrators believe that they can accomplish along with the help of others that which they're able to visualize. And so they like to see these long range goals come, to, come out by the visions that they are casting under their respective authority. Number eight, easily facilitates resources and people to accomplish tasks or goals. And so, like one who loves to put pieces of a puzzle together, they like to see the big picture come together. That's the administrator. They will a lot of times pull in people who can do things better than they can, 
all to see the large goal accomplished in their life. The administrator loves to fit people and resources together to facilitate a task. And this could also be a misuse that we'll get to here in just a few minutes. Number nine, enjoys delegating tasks and supervising people. Administrators love to tell people what to do. You probably have some of those in your life. Maybe you are. They love to give direction. They love to tell you what to do. They love to tell you how to do it. If, and they'll, they'll give you, your opinion. They'll give you your, their opinion. They'll say, all right, you're going to do this. You're going to do this way by this time, by this day. That's the administrator. They love to tell people what to do. They seem to know what jobs need to be done and who best can accomplish that job. So they like delegation. Whereas I said, they can do a lot of things, but they're not the best at everything. They'll find the person they can delegate that to and they can uh, see the goal accomplished through the person they've given it to. All right, number 10. Will endure criticism in order to accomplish the ultimate task. And so as they envision this long-term goal, obviously there are going to be people they're working with, if it's a pastor, or if it's a boss, a CEO, or whatever, there's going to be people working with them that is not going to see the vision that they see. And so at times, they will endure a great deal of criticism in order to accomplish the ultimate task. Leaders get criticized. It seems to be part of the occupational hazard of administration. One pastor said it like this, the problem with working with a church is that you have people. When you have people, you have problems. Why? We're sinful. And so a lot of times our tendencies, our jealousies, our opinions will clash. And so a lot of times the administrator is the one that gets the butt of the, the end of the criticism in that scenario. So they will endure criticism in order to accomplish the ultimate task. Number 11, has great zeal and enthusiasm for whatever he is involved in. Has great zeal and enthusiasm for whatever he or she is involved in. Enthusiasm emanates naturally from the administrator. It is as if God has given the administrator the ability to throw all of his efforts into a situation, into the vision, into the projects, and, and in order to, to see the conclusion and that vision come a reality. Although the administrator's zeal is pure and unselfish, it is so strong that other, and so strong that others are often threatened and overwhelmed by this person. So you know what it is. You're the server. You like to follow. And here's the boss, the administrator, who's very, this is what you're to do. This is how you're going to do it. A lot of times, if you're not the administrator, you can become overwhelmed by the administrator because of the way that they lead in certain situations. Number 12, finds great fulfillment and joy in working to accomplish goals. For administrators with long-range projects, the point of joy is often way down the road. So where the server or whoever it was last week, they like to see the small things accomplished day by day. I can check this off my list. I can say I've accomplished this. That's not the administrator. The administrator has the long-range goal, but once they finally get there, they have a lot of joy and satisfaction in what's been accomplished. But they understand my vision is going to take years to accomplish, and so they're willing to wait for the, the accomplishment for a very long time, and even if it's way down the road. Number 13 is willing to let others get the credit in order to get the job done. The administrator is, is, has the ability to let others get the credit in order to get the main job done. The mature administrator does not worry about getting all the accolades. They do not worry about getting all of the applause. They just want to see the job accomplished. So if they don't do it, so be it. They just want to see the job accomplished with whatever they're overseeing. So he views success as a collective achievement. So the administrator views success as a collective achievement. Number 14, prefers to move on to a new challenge once something is completed. They're not going to be the one that sits still. They're the one that's up and working and doing and casting vision. Once the big thing is over, all right, what can we do next? They're always wanting to work on something, always driven by what's in front of them, and they want to see something completed. But then once it's completed, all right, what's next? Where's the next project? Where's the next long-range goal? They're always ready for a new challenge once the other one is completed. Number 15, constantly writes notes to self. 
They daily write reminder notes to themselves and make lists of things to do, calls to make, and goals to accomplish. Administrators have so much on their minds that if they don't write something down, when they think of it, they're apt to forget it. And so there are always little post-it notes all over their computer. If you know Pastor Jackson, he is an administrator. You go in his office, notes everywhere. He writes things down to himself because if not, he's going to forget it. And so that's his gift and he's great at what he does. But he writes little notes to himself. And a lot of times that's the administrator. They're all the time writing little things to themselves because they've got so much going on. What they're thinking about, what's next, what's the, what's the project, what's in front of me. They might be apt to forget it. Number 16 is a natural and capable leader. Administrators do not, do not do well in team leadership. They have their own ideas about the way that they lead. And so they want to be the actual leader. They do not want people helping them doing what it is. They're a natural and capable leader. They far prefer to follow than to have dual leadership. So if there's going to be two people in the same role, they'd rather be the one under it rather than leading together. They want to either be the leader or the one under the leader having that authority and in their respective boundaries. Number 17, knows when to keep old methods going and when to introduce new ones. Knows when to keep old methods going and when to introduce new ones. The administrators have great wisdom to move people outside of their comfort zone. So a lot of times we don't like that. We want to stay right where we're comfortable, right where things are great and peachy. But here comes the administrator. All right, we're going to do this and get out of your comfort zone because they have a great knowledge of when to pull out an old idea and when to put in a new one. The wise leader introduces new ideas or ways of functioning one or two things at a time, letting people hold on to much of what they're familiar with while adjusting to fresh. And so they're good at gradually bringing in new ideas, letting us hold on to a little bit of the old, but here's a little bit of the new. And so they're good at doing that. Number 18, enjoys working with and being around other people. So they don't like to work in team leadership, but they enjoy working with and being around other people. Administrators are great observers of human behavior and are constantly learning how to work with people more effectively. Number 19, wants to see things completed as quickly as possible. They find joy in seeing their goals accomplished. With that being said, they want their projects done quickly. But even if it's long range, they want to see it timely. They want to see steps being done. They want to see things happening, things into motion to accomplish that goal. Even if the end goal is very long down the road, they want to see things happening so that that goal is being accomplished as quick as possible. Lastly, number 20, does not enjoy doing routine tasks. They're not enjoying the meaningless day-to-day task. Their, their philosophy is no challenge, no interest. If this is not challenging me, I'm not interested in doing this, and so they do not enjoy the routine task. Like the other ones, there are problems and misuses with the administrator. So five of these, number one, becomes upset when others do not share the same vision or goals. The administrator can become upset when others do not share in the same vision or the same goal. When coworkers have stunted the vision or hampers the accomplishment of goals, to the administrator, it's a milestone and it's a millstone hanging around their neck. Perhaps the most important thing for the administrator to learn is that prayer changes everything. They have the natural tendency to want to get it done their way when they want to do it by their certain timetable. But something they need to understand is people are sinful and there's going to be mistakes along the way. But the administrator needs to learn that prayer changes everything. Number two, they can develop an outer callus due to being a target for so much criticism. So I said earlier, the administrator, they get a lot of the criticism, a lot of the hate, a lot of the complaints because they are the one everybody goes to. So at times they can develop this callus to where they hear it so much, they're not affected by it and it's not gonna prompt them to change anything. And so that's something the administrator has to work on. They have to be compassionate and still able to hear the criticism so they can change what needs to be changed. Number three, can revert to using people to accomplish their own goals. And so where I said they're great at delegating tasks other people that can be a misuse where they can learn and not even intentionally 
be using someone just to accomplish a goal, not really caring about what that person is doing. So the administrators are so, so goal-oriented that they can forget that people are not pawns to be moved about in a game of chess. Unintentionally, they push a good quality to an extreme until they become inconsiderate of even, and even hurtful to others at times. So the administrator has to be very careful not to use people just to see their goal accomplished and then forget about that person completely. Number four, tends to drive self and neglect personal family needs. And so you know the administrator. They're so driven by what they're doing at work, at times they can neglect personal and family needs. Priorities. That's what the administrator needs to keep in mind. They need to set a list of what's most important in their life and then where everything else in work falls into place. Their zeal for their work or ministry can leave those they loved feeling most neglected. Whenever the administrators are considering new fields or endeavors, they need, to take a, uh, they need to take stock of the present obligations that they have before they take on new responsibilities. So it's easy for the administrator to neglect family and personal needs, all to see the long-term goal accomplished. Number five, sometimes they tend to neglect routine home responsibilities in light of what they're doing at, at their job. So some wives, that's you, you won't sweep the floor, you won't mop, you won't do the dishes. But sometimes the administrator, they can be so focused on what they're doing and the long-term goal. They work to weigh hours in the night and sometimes they neglect their personal responsibilities at home and with their family. All right, the last one. Mercy or compassion, the compassionate person. This one, I believe, is probably the most given among the body of Christ. And so while a lot of us, and this is not going to be true for everybody, while a lot of us have one main goal, kind of like we're called to this one thing, a lot of us are still going to possess this goal, this, this gift. Some of you are going to be more gifted in this than the person sitting beside you. But the compassionate person or the merciful person, look at the last part of verse 8, Romans chapter 12. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And so the merciful or the compassionate person of all the gifts that of compassion is by far the most frequently bestowed. Maybe it's because so many people are hurting and God has created such a vast number of compassionate people to help those that are hurting around them. And if we look at the world today, it seems like there is more hurt on every front. And so there is a need for people with compassion to stand up in the church and give their gift to those that are in need. All right, so the characteristics, number one, has a tremendous capacity to show love. The compassionate person has a, has a tremendous capacity to show love. Of all the gifts, this is the one with the greatest capacity and ability to love on others, to be there for other people. The more opportunity they have to give love, the more joyful and fulfilled they are. They are fulfilled when they're loving on, caring for, and helping other people because they love to show compassion, love, and mercy. Number two, they always look for the good in people. They're always looking for the good in people. Whereas, like I said, the discerner, there, that person's bad. Teenagers, stay away from them. Here comes the compassionate person. Well, I can see how that person might have made that mistake. Or, well, I can see where that person might be going down that road. And they're always looking for the silver lining or the good in everybody that they meet. Compassionate people, they're not critical people. They're not complaining people. Neither do they want to hear other people around them talk negative about someone else because they always focus on the good that's in that person. Number three, senses the spiritual and emotional atmosphere of a group or individual. They have a great understanding to be able to sense the spiritual and emotional atmosphere of a group or individual. A lot of times it's kind of like the discerner, but they seem to have emotional feelers uh, that come out when they enter a room. They can sense a need, they can see a need, they can see a hurt, and they're good at reading body language. Where someone can be hurting and they'll say, I was talking to somebody the other day, 
I cannot remember who I was riding down the road with. Yeah, it was Mr. Daniel, Todd Daniel. And he said, this person just has a great ability to when they see a need, they say, you know what, that person's hurting. I'm like, well, how'd you pick up on that? Well, didn't you hear, hear what they said? So the compassionate, merciful person. They are always looking for the good in people, but also they have a good judge of the spiritual and personal atmosphere of the person that they're around. And so they're good at reading body language. Number four, they're attracted to people who are hurting or in distress. They're attracted to people who are hurting or in distress. Um, they're, they're the children that bring home lost dogs, stray cats, lonely kids, no one else that no one else has cared for. They love to help love to have people around. They love to just pick up a need wherever the need is at. Number five, they take action to remove hurts and relieve distress in others. Compassionate people are not, are not only drawn to hurting people, they also do something about it. So where sympathy says, I'm sorry you're hurt. Empathy says, I'm sorry you're hurt and I hurt with you. The compassionate person says this, I'm sorry you hurt, I'll hurt with you, and I'm going to stay right here with you until the hurt is gone. The compassionate person, they're not one that's going to come in, swoop in with a bit of encouragement, and then leave. They're one that's going to stay with the person that's hurting until the hurt is gone. Number six, they're more concerned for mental and emotional distress than physical distress. More concerned with mental and emotional distress than physical distress. Constantly offers emotional support. Compassionate people are the first to visit when things are not going well. So if you're the compassionate person, you always want to go visit somebody, always want to stay and talk and help and encourage and speak to that person and just love on that person because you know there's a need there and you have the mercy and compassion to give to that need. Number seven, is motivated to help people have right relationships with one another. They're motivated to help people have right relationships with one another. Compassionate people grieve over broken relationships. They are peacemakers. They love to have peace inside of their relationships, and they want to see the body of Christ united and functioning in love. And so they want to help people have right relationships with one another. They hate tension. Number eight, loves opportunities to give to places or others. So loves opportunities to give to to preference or place or others. I mistyped that. Sorry, I'm a notes. These are people who will open the door for you, let you step in line in front of them, or give you the best chair. Man, these people in youth group, we were, uh, quick story, I know we got six minutes. We were going to, we were at Wendy's, going to Tennessee. We were already two hours behind schedule. And here comes this family of five, and we're 40 people, and they're like, hey, you can come get in front of us. I'm like, no, they can't get in front of us. We're on a schedule. We've got to be somewhere. So maybe I do lack compassion, like my mom said all along. But People, they'll let you get in front of them in line. They'll let people cut in front of them. They're always wanting to help somebody right when they see a need. Number nine, takes care with words and actions to avoid hurting others. So they care with words and actions to avoid hurting others. The last thing a compassionate person wants is to be the cause to hurt another person. They're so bound to help, so bound to lift up, they do not ever want to cause and inflict hurt on other people. Therefore, they are careful with their own actions and with their speech. They're very slow to speak, slow to anger, and they want to say the right things to the right person. Number 10, easily detects dishonesty or wrong motives. The compassionate person's built-in radar system helps him to detect ulterior motives or insincerity in, in, in any kind. They're quick to detect wrong motives or dishonesty in anybody. So you can discern very, very quickly, that person's not telling the truth, that person's not sincere, that person's got a wrong motive, they're quick to judge that about other people. Number 11, is drawn to other people with the gift of compassion. They're drawn to other people with the gift of compassion. You get two compassionate people together, you're gonna to be there a while, because they love to talk about the way they can help, the way they can serve, and what they can do for other people. Those with the motivational gift of compassion are naturally drawn to each other. It isn't that they think alike, 
but they feel alike also. So they think the same and they feel the same for the hurt that is around them. Number 12, loves to do thoughtful things for others. These are the people who remember birthdays, anniversaries, and other important days. Compassionate husbands and wives show it more than others, other than the other gifts do. They're always willing and doing thoughtful things for the other people around them because they love to help and make people feel good with words and gifts. Number 13, is trustworthy and very trusting. They're trustworthy and trusting. It is because they are trustworthy that compassion people expect others to be so also. So they expect you to be truthful with them. They expect you to be able to trust you just as much as you expect to be able to trust the person with compassion. They assume that everyone is honest and reliable. This could also be a misuse. They can get hurt this way until they're proven otherwise. And so they always see the good in people. They assume everyone is honest, everyone's reliable, until they absolutely are proven otherwise. They are greatly disappointed when someone proves not to be reliable, but they will continue to expect the best from that person anyways. And so they all, they're very disappointed when someone is proven not to be trustworthy or reliable. But still, they're trying to see the good in that person, and they want the best from that person in the end result. Number 14. Avoids conflict and confrontations. They avoid conflict and confrontation. Even small children with the gift of compassion find it very difficult to cope with difficulty. So you'll see that among children. Compassionate people, they're not conf con they don't confront people. They don't like confrontation. They don't like tension. They want things to be smooth. They want to help. They want to love. And so they are not people of conflict or confrontation. Number 15. They do not like to be rushed in a job or in an activity. The compassionate person, they do not like to be rushed in a job or in an activity. Their mindset is their speed is slow. They're just driving at 45. Everything's a Sunday cruise. Everything's peachy. That's my mom. All's good. Everything's being done slow. And so that's the person. Compassionate people have one speed, and it's first gear. It's slow. It is slow. Number 16 is typically cheerful and joyful. They're typically cheerful and joyful people. Compassionate people are very positive people. They always see the good. They never see the bad. They always see positive. They're, they're great and they're joyful and cheerful people. Since they desire to relieve hurts and encourage relationships, they are constantly working to bring the level of happiness in others up to their own and beyond. They don't want to see a person down. They don't want to see a person hurting. If they see someone hurting, here they come with compassion, hug around the neck. They're ready to help somebody, and they're always cheerful and always joyful. Number 17, they're ruled by the heart rather than the head. Ruled by the heart rather than the head. The heart plays the major role in the compassionate person's life. His heart or her heart is the channel through which, through which he shares God's wonderful love with others. Compassionate people are fillers, they rely on emotions rather than the mental processes to guide their lives. So they rely solely on emotions. What they feel, that's when they act. Number 18, rejoices to see others blessed and grieves to see others hurt. The person with the compassionate gift has an immense capacity to identify with others with what's going on in their life. And so Jesus shows compassion. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Very great. He feels what we're feeling and knows what we're going through. And that's the compassionate person. They have that gift. They can almost put themselves in the situation with the person that's hurting in order to help that person out of that situation. There are times when we need someone to empathize with our sorrow or hurt. We don't need advice. We don't need encouragement. We don't need evaluation. But we need someone who can just sit 
and feel what we're feeling, feel the pain that we're feeling, weep with us, cry with us. That's the compassionate person. Number 19, they're an advocate for good causes. In the eyes of the compassionate people, they right needs to prevail. They want to see the right thing happening all the time in every situation and every scenario that they are in. Number 20, and lastly, intercedes for the hurts and the problems of others. Compassionate people are a lot of times called to intercessory prayer. They're always praying for God to intervene in that situation, always praying for that person, and they pray with abandonment, almost forgetting there are others present, unashamed of their tears or their expressions of emotion. All right, five or four or five misuses, and then we're done with the, all of this. All right, problems with the compassionate person. The motivational gift of compassion is potentially the most beautiful, the most given, and also they can be the most emotionally destructive. Compassionate people are the most vulnerable to hurt because their hearts are open to others so much. And so out of all the gifts, the one that will get hurt the most is a lot of times the compassionate person. Shouldn't it be that way, but they're opening their heart to so many people at times they're gonna get hurt. So number one, they tend to be indecisive. Where the one person is quick to make the decision, they tend to be indecisive. It is difficult for the compassionate person to make decisions. He or she will ponder the possibility of consequences, delay as long as they can, or transfer the responsibility to, responsibility to others if possible. And so it's difficult for them to make a decision at times. Number two, it's prone to take up another person's offense. They need to learn first that these matters are none of their business, except as they can pray for those that are involved. And so they can be prone to take up another person's offense. Second, they need to learn that prayer will move mountains. Just as prayer can diffuse the perceiver's critical attitude, so prayer can diffuse the compassionate person's tendency to take up someone else's, someone else's offense. Sometimes taking up offenses gets in the way of God's dealing with another person. So the compassionate person at times can get in this problem, get in the situation where God at times would not have you to get into that situation. A good prayer for the compassionate person is this, Lord, help me to be slow to be offended on my behalf of others. So sometimes when the compassionate person, their help is not wanted, at times they can feel very hurt because of that. Number three, here it is, is easily hurt by others. For the compassionate person, because their heart is so open to people all the time, they can easily get hurt by others. No one gets hurt as, easy, as easily as the compassionate person. Unfortunately, compassionate children often assume the blame for strife between parents and they tend to take everything so very personally. It's all personal to them, what someone said to them. Number four, empathizes too much with suffering of others. If they empathize too completely with the suffering of others, it can weigh them down and render them ineffective in their ministry. So they have to be careful what they take on, the people that they help, so that they're not being rendered useless in their ministry. The answer is to remind that Jesus has already endured our sorrows and griefs, and he is the only one with a heart large enough to carry every one of them. The compassionate person has to know their limits. There are people you can help, but there are some situations you just probably shouldn't get into because your heart just is not big enough to handle all that that load's going to be. But Jesus is the one that can carry everything. Number five, and lastly, affectionate in nature is often misinterpreted by the opposite sex. So this is only specific to those that counsel with this specific gift. A lot of times, because they're so friendly, because they're so overly joyful, a lot of times people, if someone is in Christian counseling and they're counseling someone in the outside world that's lost, that other person can get the wrong idea because this person is so nice, joyful, and cheerful, and their heart is so open to them. So a good rule of thumb, if you're counseling anybody, even with any of these gifts, male with male, female with female, if you're a male counselor, have a female present as you're counseling, your wife present as you're counseling someone else. Never counsel the other sex alone. That goes for anybody in ministry and any gift. That's it. So that's number five. I, whew, that's a mouthful. 
Um, I've enjoyed it. And there were some other things we were going to go over, but it's 7.03. And so I know you're tired. Probably your ears have probably bled out from listening to me talk for so long. And my tongue is dry. I want some water. And so I'm going to pray. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to understand you've been given a gift. If you want to go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, read the whole chapter. It speaks of these gifts again, but then it says there's a body. This is what we we're going to go over to end. There was a body. There's a body. The body is the church. It's one body. But everybody that's, been, that's placed their faith in Jesus is put inside of this body, and you have a purpose. So stop trying to be someone else. Allow God to shape who you are in your relationship with Jesus. When you allow him to shape you, he will use you more effectively. If we start trying to be who we're not, we're not going to be used. So figure out your gift. That's my prayer. I pray you at least have some understanding of who you are, what your gift is, so that you can make much of Jesus. Listen, that's what we're here for. Until he returns, and I believe it's soon, let's, as the body of Christ here at Beulah Baptist Church, gather together, working to see souls saved, working to see the kingdom advanced, and working to see the gospel go forth with mighty power. So I pray you know your gift. I pray you're using your gift, and I pray your gift is in the body where it should be, and you're using it effectively where he's called you to minister. I know we had a couple of questions to answer, but if you wrote a question, just you come see me. I'll answer that question for you so we can get everybody out of here. Father, I love you so much. I thank you for all that you do for us. I thank you for this group of people that have come out for four weeks, Father, to hear me talk for an hour. But God, I pray that the Holy Spirit speaking through this material has, used, has been used in their life. Father, I pray they can more effectively understand their gift today and that they're needed in the church. Father, I said this last week, they need the church, but the church needs them. And so let us all figure out our gift, whether it's compassion, whether it's exhortation, no matter what, let us figure out our gift so that we can make the most of Jesus with the days that we have lived. We love you so much in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the I Am Persuaded podcast, please consider subscribing and share with your friends. We pray this is a blessing in your life. God bless.